Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, God and the Problem of Evil, as we look at the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, with a message entitled, Our Wise God. We've been studying Habakkuk and the phenomenon of evil and suffering in relationship to the sovereignty of God. You know, some people may wonder why I'm taking so much time on this controversial subject, so let me explain. Every one of us will face evil and every one of us will suffer. See, one of the great tragedies is that there are so many believers who have not connected and integrated their experience of suffering with their faith in a sovereign God, God who loves them and yet can, at the snap of his fingers, at any moment, end all evil and suffering. As a Bible teacher, I have an obligation to deal with this. Jewish Auschwitz survivor Viktor Frankl once wrote, Just as a small fire is extinguished by the storm, whereas a large fire is enhanced by it, likewise a weak faith is weakened by predicaments and catastrophes, whereas a strong faith is strengthened by them. See, I'm surprised that this is not an often repeated quote and explained many times. Because most of the time when Hollywood makes a movie about faith and suffering, they always portray someone who begins to doubt. Now, I actually think they're not trying to do the Christian faith an injustice. It's just that it's never occurred to them that there are those when they suffer, every instinct within them is to draw nearer to God and trust his hand as he takes them through the furnace. Frankel said that people who lose faith when suffering usually have had a very small faith or a nominal faith. And so I actually think it is nominal and weak faith that Hollywood understands. What suffering does is display what has always been there, either a lack of confidence in the kind providence of God or a full embracing of it. See, but that doesn't mean that for those who have a strong faith that they experience the suffering as any less painful. As Hebrews 12, 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems painful. People of great faith don't weep less. In the garden, Jesus himself sweat drops of blood. And I'm not arguing that anything other than real valleys of sorrow can follow us. But it is the firm grasp of our Savior that is most to be desired. Now, sometimes bad faith is inspired by bad theology. Some teachers have for a long time now been urging a view that if only we had enough faith, we could ward off everything from poverty to disease to tragedy. See, faith is based on half-truths. I mean, trite sayings like, God has nothing to do with this. I mean, this just came from the devil. This is a faith that can be snuffed out when the wind blows. So the reason for studying Habakkuk is to give you a strong faith when the storm arrives. Today, as we study the next section in Habakkuk, I want to remind you of what we studied. First, we've noted that God has ordained the days of disaster. Amos 3, verse 6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God did it. He takes full responsibility for it. He doesn't like it when we, in our foolishness, try to absolve him of it. Lamentations 3, verse 38 says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? God says he sends bad things. So a bit of advice. Stop trying to correct God by saying that Lamentations 3.38 just can't be true. And so we've noticed that God ordains the day of disaster even while he is set apart from evil. Secondly, we have noticed that Habakkuk had a complaint. 
Why is it, he asks, that when injustice and unrighteousness and violence have become commonplace in Jerusalem, that it seems like God is idly watching and and seems to be doing nothing? And in response, God surprises Habakkuk by telling him exactly what it is that he's doing. He's raising up the Babylonians, the most feared empire, who will come and burn Jerusalem to the ground for her evil. And today, as we carry on in the study of Habakkuk, we find that Habakkuk has much of the same response to this that you and I might have to his answer. And so today, as we study Habakkuk's second complaint, we will consider the righteousness of God in raising up nations to punish other nations, in this case, Babylon, in order to punish Judah. So I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Habakkuk is speaking to God, responding to the shocking news that God has just given him. God says he's raising up the Babylonians, and here now is Habakkuk's response. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Now let's be clear about what we just read. Remember, in his first complaint, Habakkuk asked God why he did not stop all this injustice. God answered him. He he right now is doing something about injustice. Right now, he is raising up the Babylonians to punish Israel for her wickedness. He's using an evil nation to punish evil Judah. And by all indications, that's the answer. And Habakkuk does not question this again. He's understood God's answer. But the answer, although it's a complete answer, leads him to a second question about evil. Why does God use evil to punish evil? Okay, let's break Habakkuk's complaint into two sections. The first section is in verses 12 to 13, where Habakkuk thinks that for God to act this way is not in keeping with God's holiness. And the second section is a small gem, and it's found in in verse 14, which we really mustn't ignore. Habakkuk wants to know why God has made human beings as vulnerable as they are, so that they are at all times easy prey. And then the last section, verses 15 to 17, Habakkuk both describes the wickedness of Babylon, and then he wonders how it is that God can countenance them even for a moment. So let's consider each of these three sections. First, how can a pure and holy God use evil people to judge others? Let's listen to Habakkuk 1, verse 12a again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? God is everlasting. This means more than that God has always existed. So, for instance, Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See, to call God everlasting not only says that God always has and will exist, It says that God is ruler of his creation, and he is wise in his rulership. That is, he rules very well. Notice the second line. He calls God the Holy One. 
You know, this phrase is a parallel to the first part of verse 13. There Habakkuk states of God, you who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now, obviously, God sees evil and does look at it, but the point is, God utterly hates evil. This is a part of what his holiness means. He is set apart from evil. His actions are all motivated by purity and his own righteous designs. See, unlike us who are sometimes motivated by greed or selfishness or envy, God's motivation is only and always his righteousness and his holy character. But notice also that Habakkuk does not call God the Holy One. Instead, he says, my God and my Holy One. There is a personal dimension here. The prophet knows God as his God. That is, he is a man of faith who has entered into a relationship with God. Habakkuk does not approach the problem of evil as a doubter, but as a lover of God who's trying to understand, who says, God, instruct me. See, how different that is from the person who's angry with God. For they never say, my holy one. See, that's why the next line, we we shall not die. That line is not out of place. You know, his everlasting holy God has made promises that cannot fail. And Habakkuk believes them. He has promised that the Jewish people for all generations would continue to endure. They will never cease to exist. So even in the day of evil, as he knows the Babylonians will come and destroy Jerusalem and cause great evil, Habakkuk has a strong confidence that in the end, Israel will survive. You know, that's not to say that Israel is not going to be punished. Habakkuk knows that the God who hates evil will not sit still while Israel is sinning. And he now knows how he will act. And he also knows that all the other promises of God that God has made will not fail. And so we see in Habakkuk both the confusion of a man who knows that his holy God cannot tolerate evil. And yet at the same time, this same holy God uses Babylon and also the assurance that whatever Babylon does, it will not be permitted to utterly destroy Israel. But still, that leaves us with the question, how can a pure and holy God use Babylon? The world we live in is a fallen one. Bad things are happening all around us, but why? How could a God who loves us allow evil to exist in the world? These are the questions that Dr. John Newfeld answers in his series, God and the Problem of Evil. It's become popular for people to say that they're angry at God, but have we stopped to think about how God feels about us? What happens when you shake your fist at God when life gets hard? When we are in seasons of despair, what should our response to our Creator be? God will always act in a way that's consistent with His character, not with culture. Join us every day for more Bible teaching you can trust from Back to the Bible Canada. And if you'd like to support the ministry or receive more information about all the free resources available, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Notice the last two lines of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. It's not a question, it's a statement. Habakkuk is completely accepting of God's answer. He repeats as if to say, God, if you say so, I believe it. But that doesn't mean he yet understands it. 
See, it was Augustine who counseled Christians that the formula is not that we must understand in order to believe. Rather, said Augustine, we must believe in order to understand. If you want to know God's ways, you must begin with the attitude that God is the Holy One and you're not. And so Habakkuk simply acknowledges what he does not yet understand. And we've got to do the same. If you shake your fist at God, you'll harm yourself. For years now, it's been very popular for people to say that they're angry with God. To that, I respond, who do you think that God is, that you might be angry with him? Would it not be a better response that you should fear him and acknowledge his holiness and from that seek to understand? Now, what I especially love here is what Habakkuk calls God the rock. Now, a rock's a place of security. It's, it's a place that's not going to move. A rock's something that holds secure when the times change and things that were once popular become unpopular. The God who is a rock will always act consistently with his character and with his pronouncements and with his promises, not with the mood of the times. No doubt Habakkuk is quoting from Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, where Moses sings a song about God. He sings, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The idea is that God, the rock, will always act in holiness, never out of evil intent and in keeping with justice and righteousness. God will always do what's right. But this is precisely where the problem lies. Some of you remember how when David sinned, God asked him to make a choice. Shall punishment come to Israel in the way of a plague or in the way of a defeat on the battlefield? And do you remember David's answer? It's found in 2 Samuel 24, verse 12. Then David said to Gad, who was the prophet, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. (laughs) That's what I would have said. And I think that Habakkuk would have said the same. So then this is his question found in verse 13. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Why can't Israel simply fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great? Why fall into the hands of evil men? Here's the question. How is God in holiness able to use evil? If he abhors evil and disdains it and finds evil contemptible in his sight and grieves over evil, hates evil and always acts out of righteous motives, how can he turn and use evil? Why does he not simply punish Israel directly? And that's many of our problems today. And we should answer this by first acknowledging that God does use evil for his purposes. But there's more. The evil nation God is using to punish Judah is more evil than the evil Jews. See, we should know that it is a trite thing to say, well, you know, all sin is just sin. No, some sin is more evil than other sin. I mean, it's amazing how often Christians don't get this point. It's more evil to rape and kill a woman than it is to lust over her, while even both of them are evil. And here, a more evil nation is punishing a less evil one. The cure seems worse than the disease. So let me put it theologically. Should not God's instrument of justice or his means of justice reflect his own purity and righteousness? Why doesn't God use a clean scalpel to cut out evil rather than this brutal, filthy hammer? See, that's the question. How can God use evil? Now, some of you have the same problem. 
You simply will not believe that God does that. And that's why you say God had nothing to do with it. But if that's what you hold, you've got two problems. First, the Bible disagrees with you. And second, you have now imagined a world that God does not completely rule. And that would be frightening and horrible beyond degree. Think, if it were really true that stuff just happens, then all the promises of God to protect you, well, they would mean nothing. That's a horrible way to think. Now, that's Habakkuk's first question. How can a holy God look on as evil men effectively and even unknowingly do his will? Now to his second question. Why is the human race as a whole so very vulnerable to the evil designs of others? Look again at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. I want you to play with that image that Habakkuk uses. He notices that the nations around Babylon are like fish being assaulted by fishermen. Imagine the fish saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to mount up a defense against the gill net that the fisherman is using against us. Well, that's a laugh. They can't. The fish are helpless. They have no defenses, no leadership that will protect them. That, says Habakkuk, is how the nations around Babylon are. And now notice what he says. It's at the beginning of verse 14. He says, God, you have made the nations like this. This was God's doing. He, by his predestined will, made the nations around Babylon weak and unable to respond so that Babylon would roast them. Think about that. Now, of course, at other times, human beings have had great rulers and righteous nations have in the past protected themselves from the designs of a wicked nation. But the real point is that when that happens, when righteous nations protect themselves from evil ones, that's called the grace of God. But it's also true that by nature, unless we have a protector, all human beings are vulnerable. That's exactly how Judah felt. And so we come to Habakkuk's third question. His first question, how can God use evil to accomplish his purposes? His second, why does God make people so vulnerable by nature? And that was third question. Can God receive glory when it seems like the only one gaining glory for Babylon's success is Babylon? Habakkuk now takes the image of the net and expands that. Imagine, if you will, a huge fish trawler with a huge net simply emptying out the ocean, everything behind it's barren. You know, it's the kind of thing that environmentalists warn about. See, that's the description of Babylon. The net is their army, their implements of war, their strategy. As their army wins battle after battle, they bring home the fruit of their net, jewels and silver, gold, tribute, slaves in abundance. And everyone in the city of Babylon is cheering like the Stanley Cup parade every time. This is fantastic, they say. We're winning every fight. Now look at verse 16a. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. Let me interpret that. The net and the dragnet is a reference to the Babylonian weapons and their military war machine. What Habakkuk is saying is that the Babylonians don't recognize that it was God who gave them success. Rather, They attribute their success to themselves. They've made a god of themselves, and they worship themselves. They gloried in their power. They did not acknowledge the God who eternally exists. And that leads Habakkuk to a question. Since Babylon gives no glory to God, according to verse 17, are they to keep on this way forever? See, that question is not unlike what what Jeremiah complained about in, in Jeremiah 12, verse 1. 
He says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why do the wicked prosper? And then Jeremiah goes on to say, just like Habakkuk, the thought of God is far from the hearts of those wicked people. And then if that's not enough, Jeremiah contrasts that to his own situation. In Jeremiah 12, verse 3, he says, But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. God seems to demand things of Jeremiah that he does not demand of the wicked, and that's so hard to grasp. Now, Habakkuk doesn't take it that far, but he does ask the same questions. Indeed, we might even argue that the reason there are so many unrighteous people in the world is is because they think that unrighteousness pays off so well, whereas the righteous often have a very difficult time of things. This is so important. God's going to answer Habakkuk. There really are answers to these questions. And once the answer becomes plain, there are conclusions that we should all come to. And so if we learn anything from Habakkuk at this point, it is this. Ask of God, but also expect of God, that God himself has a better answer than we had ever imagined. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray to you now that when we come to you and when we ask, O Lord God, open our hearts so that we might believe you because we find that when we believe, only then are we to understand. O Heavenly Father, may we ask in faith and not in arrogance. In Jesus' name, amen. John, I love that uh, expression that you mentioned uh, from Augustine, and, and, and it sort of puts the, the world on its ear a little bit because I think we operate in this way. We, we want to understand everything before we believe anything, but Augustine's saying that we need to believe in order to understand. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't mean, Augustine never meant that there aren't uh, you know, firm reasons for our faith, but Augustine knew what so many Christian teachers have also said. See, the, the mind of man is also beset by sin. And so, you know, we have desires in our own heart, and our own desires sometimes dictate what it is that we will believe. So, you know, we make up all sorts of reasons for believing things, not because that's where the evidence leads us, but that's where our own sinful inclinations start. So we really need to begin by saying, God, if I can believe anything, I can believe you. And once we begin to do that, it's amazing how the starting point of faith and humility and accepting the ways of God opens up our minds and we begin to say, you know, I I see things in the way in which I've never seen them before. Thanks so much, John. Join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. 
In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 